You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gartner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking about the opportunities for data science in the pharmaceutical industry. A really hot topic, so stay tuned for this. There are already lots of lots of different other episodes about data science and we'll have a couple of more kind of methodological uh, things coming up later this year about this area. So there's lots of other things you can learn about data science. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Head over to psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. Today, I'm talking with Da Cheng Liu from Baringer Engelheim. Hi, happy to have you on the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's very good. You work in an organization that very much emphasizes the use of data science and data science applications in the um in the pharmaceutical industry. How did you get into, into this area of data science and, and um, what does data science mean to you? Thank you. It's a great question. It makes me reflect how I end up where I am now. Um, so if I think, uh, you know, back in my um, college days, I, I, I studied mathematics uh, in undergraduate. Uh, when I was in China. And then after that, I actually spent a few years uh, doing my master in the area of information system. Mm-hmm. So these two are kind of closely connected, you know, the information system with what we call nowadays, you know, tech, uh, information technology, data science, these are all connected. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, uh, as, as part of the requirement to, to get my master's degree, I had to study this thing called a data structure algorithm. What um, is data structure algorithm? What does it mean? Well, it's basically, you know, the types of data you, you would uh, analyze, uh, you know, in a computer system. And then the typical algorithms such as sorting, you know, those kind of things. Okay. Right? okay. You can have a, like a tree structure in, in the computer system and how do you do things based on that data structure. So there, there are various algorithms attached to it. In my case, I actually, uh, I wrote a paper uh, while doing my master. It's uh, using the statistical methodology, a simple one, that mm-hmm. is, to, uh, to do the sorting. So I still remember it's basically about, you know, when you, when you encounter a large data set and, and the distribution is usually unknown, right? And then your sorting mm-hmm. algorithm will suffer. So you have to turn that unknown distribution into something uniform. So mm-hmm. essentially, you apply this... Uh, inverse function of your cumulative distribution to turn it into uniform and then that makes things so much faster ah. and after that i yeah so <laughs> and after that i uh 
I went to US to uh, study statistics. Uh, okay. You can see that that connection, right? Uh, and then uh, after I got my PhD in statistics, I um, I did a postdoc uh, in in Rochester, University of Rochester, and that, that was mainly about the mathematical modeling of immune system. And after that, I joined Boring Ingelheim. Okay. So and yeah, and I always had a very strong interest, you know, when I was doing my PhD in the area of computing, uh, you know, Bayesian computing and model selection in particular. So that was a very strong interest area for me. Uh, and all these things are really connected in mm. terms of data science. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So if you would give a definition of what data science is, what what would that be? Okay, I, I, this is a... <laughs> oh, uh, maybe uh, if, very, if you uh, would say, yeah. who is actually a data scientist? What's the job of a data scientist? Okay, okay. I think you may get many different answers from different people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have to say that there are really two papers that really influenced me a lot in this in this area. One is the uh, Leo Breiman's Two Culture mm -hmm. paper. That's um, yeah. very well known. Uh, and then there's another paper by David Donahoe. He wrote a paper, Stanford professor. He wrote a paper, it's called uh, 50 Years of Data Science. I, I tend to agree with the, the definition David Donahoe provided in the paper. He basically says data science is just a science learning from data, doing whatever you need to yeah. learn from data. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. People associate data science with big data, for example, with you know AI machine learning, but I think overall there are just many aspects of, of data science. Yeah, I think there's lots of different aspects in data science. You know, it starts with organizing your data, what some people call data management, but not data management in, in the way we think about clinical trial data management, but, but a much kind of broader view right. on how you organize all your data in your company uh, and, and govern it and things like this. And then all the ways to up to the point where you get really information out of it and, and communicate this information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's it's very broad, as as you said. You know, in uh, Donald's paper, he also laid out uh, various aspects. What you said about, uh, you know, data manipulation, data exploration, visualizing the data, mm -hmm. right? Finding some patterns, and then you know, you try to build a model, you try to compute with the data, uh, and finally, once you have something available, then you have to be able to to interpret the data, right? Mm -hmm. In drug development, as you know, that we constantly discuss the results with, with uh, our clinical development team, physicians, etc. So there's just many, many aspects to this. So if, if we have this very broad definition of data science and, you know, pretty much everything is a data science method, like kind of computing a mean, doing a t-test, all right. these kind of different things are ba basically uh, data science methods. If you would look beyond kind of let's say the typical things that we do like um, mixed models and uh, logistic regression and uh, linear models things like this what would be you know the more advanced typical data science methods that you see we are currently using um 
I think it's it's really difficult to kind of isolate um, a method from the kind of question you try to answer. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's always question first, and then how you can address a question using the data at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, some data may be simple. You know, let's say you have some univariate data; it's pretty simple. Sometimes you have you know high dimensional you know multivariate data, which can be complex. And you mentioned some of the typical methods we use in, in let's say, in clinical research, right? Linear model, et cetera, logistic regression. Um, so I think this goes back to, I mean, Leo Breiman's two culture paper. In drug development, I think uh, historically, especially in clinical development, we really care about inference, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you want to say, okay, treatment A is better than treatment B. Yeah. yeah. You have a p-value less than 0.05 in the phase three study, so you're a... Your, yeah. your drug is, is, uh, is going to be sent for submission and get approved, right? So it's more about inference. Uh, well, you know, in Leo Breimer's uh, paper, he, he mentioned this two, uh, two ways of thinking things. One is around inference, and the other is prediction. Uh, so generally speaking, in clinical trials, I think we do less of prediction yeah. uh, than, than inference. So... Once you get into the, the complexity of, of prediction where, you know, you try to link all kinds of data sources, uh, that's where, uh, you know, more complex method, methods are, are used. I, you know, I wouldn't say they're more complex. Sometimes they're just, you know, less familiar for statisticians uh, with, you know, the um, traditional training in the yeah. inference framework. So, it could be just, you know, a logistic regression where you have some kind of Right. model selection and maybe some, yeah. Yeah, right. You can turn logistic regression right. into a neural net and call it cross-entropy, for example, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So prediction is one area, kind of prediction of, okay, people that will respond, people that, you know, um, will get a side effect or kind of these different questions. How about... Um, more these approaches where you have lots of you know data and lots of you know endpoints and you need to you know bring reduce the dimensionality uh, where would you see as these kind of areas important where have you seen these more dimensional yeah. reduction problems be coming up Yeah, I, I think we can think of, uh, so let, let's take one step back. So let's think about the typical clinical trial, right? Yeah. Phase two or phase three, usually what we collect the baseline uh, is really typically, you know, demographic the demographic data, some baseline, uh, baseline efficacy, some baseline uh, values. And, you know, in conjunction with you know, very strong, Entry criteria, right? If you think mm-hmm. about our, our clinical trials, usually we apply, I don't know, uh, a dozen, 20 entry criteria. Yeah. So the patient also tend to be um, rather homogeneous. Right? Yes. So yeah. in this rather homogeneous population, if you think about the, the feature space, right? Uh, when, you, when you want to apply machine learning or whatever, the feature space tend to be featureless. Yeah. So... You know, we, we've done exercises. We try to do some disease uh, modeling uh, using our um, uh, combined clinical trial database, just based on baseline, some efficacy at baseline. And then it, it's usually pretty challenging. 
yeah. to create a model out of out of uh, such data set that can be uh, reasonably predictive. So that's mm -hmm. that's hard. So which means really we, we have to augment the typical data with some uh, feature rich data set, right? So in some early phase trials, you actually measure a lot of uh, things like biomarker, you know, sometimes we, we, we measure the genes. Uh, mm -hmm. So we measure all kinds of things, which you have a, a kind of feature rich data to, to work with, okay? However, the <laughs> it, it's, it, when you have a richer uh, feature rich data set in early phase, the constraint is uh, the amount of data you have. Right. Yeah, yes, you have about typical. <laughs> you, you have very few patients, but for these very few patients, you know quite a lot. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Think about your typical phase one dose finding study. Right, you have uh, you know a few cohorts, each cohort with three, five, four, five, six patients. Yeah. So you, you have a very small data set, yet it's a feature rich. Yeah. Uh, in addition, the other challenges, you know, with early phase trials. Is tend to be uh, short term, right? So you only, yeah. you know, follow patients for maybe a couple of months, and that's it. And sometimes you really, what you really care about is there's this long term endpoints. Mm -hmm. So this there's a huge issue, I think, in, in terms of how do you utilize early phase data, and how do you really translate that into mm -hmm. something that's predictive into the future. Um, so so you know, <laughs> just going back to. The, the question, you know, I, I think um, maybe one of the possibilities is somehow we have to augment the data with early phase data. So let's say you, we augmented with real world data. That might mm -hmm. be one possibility. So, so a, if you speak yeah. here about real world data, is that more kind of, for example, data that is collected through wearables or things like that? I think that's part of the, the so-called real-world data. If you look at the, the FDA's uh, guidance document, uh, that's considered real-world data as well. Uh, yeah. What I was thinking about was, was along the line of you know the typical um, electronic health record, yeah. You know, yeah. reimbursement data, those kind of data. I think now with I think the benefit of these data is you know you you can have mm -hmm. a long-term uh, follow-up. Okay, yeah. of, of certain patients. And in addition, nowadays, there's a possibility of integrating, let's say, lab data, uh, where you can get something that's really comparable to, to a, to a you know, a actual clinical trial. Yeah. Uh, in addition, you know, there's a huge volume, right? There's a lot of patients. However, <laughs> there are also yeah. many issues with real-world data. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's really interesting for, for certain areas, uh, for certain disease areas, the amount of data that you can capture increases dramatically. So if you think right. about, uh, for example, diabetes, where you have um, ongoing um, blood glucose measurements, yeah? Right. And so, so you basically have, you know, over a day, you get thousands of measurements and uh, or you have um maybe you have you're interested more in kind of movement and and movement disorders and you you would measure these kind of things with variables or um you know these kind of topics it's yeah yes i, I think that's another aspect that, that you know what you're talking about is things related to digital endpoints right as, as you mentioned this uh, continuous glucose monitoring 
um, you know, uh, where you can actually measure the data on a continuous basis. So you, you actually get uh, this kind of high frequency data, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and certainly you, you have um, missing data issues. Yet no. the hope yeah. is by augmenting yeah. the frequency, somehow you can boost the signal, right? That, yeah. that, that's the hope. Um, I think sometimes it depends on the kind of indication you study. In some indications, I think this high frequency measurement can be beneficial. Mm -hmm. Okay. In, in some situations where, you know, you also have to wait for a while to see uh, any kind of any, any kind of benefits that's going to show up. Um, yeah. I think, for example, in the area of uh, um, atopic dermat dermatitis, right? Um, mm -hmm. I think there are companies which are really measuring the um, the nighttime scratching behavior of patients. You know, the mm -hmm. patient gets itchy at night. Uh, certainly, if you have a device that can really capture that, that's beneficial. It's much better than uh, yeah. a, a PRO instrument where you ask the patient to recall how was your sleep two weeks yeah. ago. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, questionnaires that you need to fill in every morning, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there you have, you know, this variability issue, right, with, with the PRO and you, you have the issue with what is your MCID, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> what is your uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. clinical yeah. meaningful difference? So there are all kinds of uh, subjectivity and variability attached to the typical, yeah. you know, PRO instruments. So, but if you can substitute that with something can be objectively measured, then that's, that's much better. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's really interesting. The other part is if you, if I think about dermatology indications, it's kind of imaging data. Yeah, if yeah. you can actually um, instead of measuring, for example, psoriasis via um, a questionnaire, basically uh, that the physician fills in or the patient fills in, you could take pictures of the plugs. Um, that would be also completely different. Um, I'm sure there's other disease indications where you know, measurement uh, and imaging data is, is even more important and gets more and more used. Yeah, I, I think so. I think if, if we you know, look outside the, the healthcare environment, just look at generally speaking in computer vision and machine learning in that space, I think we've seen you know, a, you know, really rapid development in the area of com computer vision, right? In, in terms of imaging analysis, you know, um, we're doing so much better with, with our cell phone, with, you know, those yeah. portable devices. In terms of uh, uh, disease diagnosis, you know, there are papers, publications on major journals and to show that, uh, you know, a computer-based system actually can already meet or even beat experts' assessment. Yeah. So I think that there's definitely a lot in, in, in that area. Um, yeah. Even yeah. I mean, within my company, I mean, my group was it last year, we we had a company-wide competition by using baseline image of patients of this, uh, you know, this you know IPF. It's called a idiopathic pulmonary uh, fibrosis. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, try to use the image or the the scan eye scan of those patients to uh, predict the disease progression. So again, yeah. if we go yeah. back to what we discussed, we try to really augment the baseline data with something that's really feature-rich. Yeah, yeah, I think that is really a 
interesting topic. You know, if you have these image data at baseline that both in terms of predicting who will respond as well as also narrowing down kind of what are real cases in terms of the diagnosis. In some areas, there's a lot of, you know, potential for misdiagnosis. And if you can, yeah, get rid of these yeah. patients that actually don't have the disease, but just looks a little bit like the disease, that surely improves quite a lot. Right, um, right. Yeah. The and, efficacy, and yeah. Exactly. So, so imaging data, I mean, one major benefit is non-invasive, right? So let, let's say if we are studying the NASH, right? the liver disease, then, you know, the, the typical way of doing that is you have to do biopsy, which yeah. isn't, is not really present for, for anybody. So nope. and quite, it, <laughs> intensive quite, quite invasive, quite yeah. invasive, right? So if, if there's a way that you can somehow leverage uh, the power of image, right. Um, yeah. To create some kind of validated endpoint to substitute or to become even a surrogate of biopsy yeah. endpoint, that would be a major benefit to the patients. Yeah, yeah. It would be a major benefit to research overall because you know you can do things much faster. It's much easier from a safety perspective. You can, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. uh, Pfizer has a group. I think they are doing some kind of study uh, in, in that direction in Nash. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. What other areas are there where kind of these machine learning and, and more advanced technologies can help you to better make sense of the data? I think there are, there are a couple of things. One is, you know, as I said, there may be a scientific question we need to answer. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. The other thing is uh, rather, you know, from the operation operational perspective, you know, we can introduce certain methods to improve the quality. We can introduce methods that can kind of automate things. Mm -hmm. There's another possibility. I think I've been, we've been talking about uh, mainly around scientific endpoints, disease, those kind of topics. But if you think about even running clinical trials, right? Other ways to improve patient recruitment, right? Yeah. That, that's one possibility. Is there a way that we can assess our entry criteria? So maybe based on the data, we can say, okay, this criteria we can relax. Uh, and, you know, we may not need all 20 or 30 or 40 inclusion criteria. Yeah. We can boil down to 20 or 15 so then we yeah. can broaden the, the patient basis. There was actually an article uh, this year uh, written by... Um, I think a Stanford group uh, on nature on this topic about uh, how to assess entry criteria for uh, oncology patient recruitment. And that's, that's pretty interesting. Duty Roy in my group, and she, she talked about the AI cure, right? How, yeah, I had uh, her on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. That, that is cool, it, yeah. Exactly. So AI cure is this company which, you know, essentially use a camera to see if a patient is truly swallowing the, the drug. Uh, and then based on that to assign some kind of compliance yeah. uh, a score. So, so essentially duty and her team did was to, to build a model. So then, you know, based on the AI cure data, you can say, okay, if I look at the data from this patient from past four weeks, 
or, or three weeks or two weeks, we see a trend that this patient may not be compliant, then maybe there's an opportunity to inform the physician or yeah. the site, then they can introduce intervention to help the patient with compliance. Right? Yeah. So yeah. That, that's, again, that's, that's about uh, operational efficiency. Another thing I could think of is that, you know, coming to the you know, data management, you know, biostat data management, as we, mm-hmm. we said earlier, you, you know, we have this SDTM, right, stuff. Uh, <laughs> as an as insider, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it can be a little bit complicated. It can be yeah, yeah. error prone. Sometimes we have quality issues. So I think there are also possibility, let's say, can we do something automatic, you know, mm-hmm. maybe use, uh, you know, natural language processing to automate this process and also reduce the error. That is interesting. So you basically use natural language processing to, for example, look for similarities and things like this. Yeah. So right. kind of, if don't know, the US spelling and the English spelling, or you know, some is a kind of a, a typo somewhere, and all these kind of different things that that right. potentially you can you know sort out instead of <laughs> in the past where you can just say is equal to or is not equal to. <laughs> right. You can even, uh, you know, look up a sky and say, okay, can I have an LP that helps the machine to understand the protocol? Yeah. Somehow yeah. that can also help you with a lot of things downstream and try yeah. to make things more automatic. I mean, yeah. natural language processing, I think is a really big area because if you think about it, lots of the data that we have is... Mm-hmm. text yeah Correct. so if you think about what physicians write down in their in their notes it's it's text yeah case reports yeah and and right. ae data there's a lot of yes text in there and if you think about let's say real world data yeah and just about all the social media stuff and things like this. And you want to better understand potentially certain trends out there. Yeah. Whether there's some kind of, you know, is that drug name associated with something that happens on social media? Then all these kind of different things become really, really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's right. So in, I think in the safety space, certainly, as you said, right, um, can you deploy a bot that can really help you to extract any safety signal of your, of your drug? And in a typical clinical trial, right, you know, if you think about the AE narratives that we have, mm. we have to manually prepare the AE narratives, uh, you know, it's many texts, right? So, you, so the, 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 I think that's also where NLP may play a role. Um, yeah. And if we are talking about the uh, real world data, you know, there's a uh, very rich information in ph- physicians' notes, yeah. which uh, unfortunately usually is not available <laughs> to, <laughs> to pharma. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I think, given the richness of of the information, I know that you know some of the companies they do um, NLP, they extract information from the unstructured nodes and you know, convert it into some kind of, some kind of, kind of, kind of uh, structured field. And yeah. it's, it's also pretty useful if you think about, you know, some of the challenges we face with, with uh, real-world data. So very simple example, you know, in, in real-world data, 
you have this uh, disease coding, right? The, yeah. the ICD-10 yeah. coding. Um, but oftentimes, that coding is, is incorrect. You know, there's a research to show that the coding itself can be 40%, 50% incorrect, mm-hmm. you know, even for the term of diabetes. So we actually work with a, a group uh, in, in Harvard. So they develop some methods to extract information out of NLP, uh, using NLP out of physician's notes. And then they actually had actual physician to review the information to provide the right coding. And okay. then you can build a, a model, right? Once you have labeled data, you can build a model to have a better, yeah, yeah. better coding than I, ICD-10. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. even in my team, so we we uh, we were we were running this clinical trial in the in the uh, patients with uh, uh, borderline personality disorder (BOPD), uh, which is also challenging for us if you just use ICD code. So we actually worked with a physician down in uh, Mount Sinai. She did uh, some case reviews for us, about 200, 300 cases. And, and, and she would label each case as, you know, highly likely BOPD or unlikely, you know, on the, on the scale mm-hmm. from one to five. And then, you know, our team actually built a model um, in conjunction with some of the, the labels in, in the uh, real world data. Uh, to have some kind of screening tool. So then uh, we can deploy the two uh, at the investigational site, and then we can provide recommendations to the physicians. And these are the possible BOPD patients. Mm. So mm. There, I think there are a lot of things to, <laughs> to explore in this space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there's a couple of areas that I'm sure we in the past were not really able to leverage or maybe just in a descriptive way or in listings that maybe in the future will be much, much more easier to to tackle. Speaking about the future, what do you think are the kind of areas where, you know, will in the future can do much more because, you know, we have more better data, more data, and more advanced methodology to solve questions. Okay. I know we all don't have a crystal ball, but <laughs> based on the trends that you currently see, what would be your kind of predictions, your, your gut feelings? Okay, yes. I, I mean, if we go beyond clinical development, if you look at the uh, you know, uh, drug discovery as a whole, then I think there, there has been a lot of movement in the area of uh, drug discovery, uh, you know, we all know this, this uh, uh, deep mind uh, alpha fold, right? Uh, that which can really predict uh, the uh, the protein structure uh, mm-hmm. based on the, the sequence uh, the amino acid. So I, I think in that space, in the drug discovery space, AI is going to play um, a really a more and more important role. Now, going into clinical drug development, I think at the moment we are still kind of constrained with uh, the challenges I mentioned earlier, right? Mm. A, you know, uh, for some large studies, we don't necessarily have those feature-rich data. And B, for some early phase, uh, you know, studies, we have some feature-rich data, but then you have the data size too small. Uh, And uh, there's another part, you know, uh, if you 
identify some signal, right? Let's say you have a first in class truck. Uh, in early phase, you, you have some signal out of some biomarkers, but then you need to validate it, mm. right? So by validation, you have to run another study usually that means, and we all know how expensive or how time consuming it is to generate yeah. another piece of data. Yeah. So, yeah. so these are really the challenges. Nevertheless, you know, as you, as we, we, we talked about, right, there is some new type of types of data, such as imaging data, you know, multi-omics data, which is also high dimensional. Uh, there could be sound data, which is high frequency. So these types of data, they do introduce new opportunities for us. So in the space of digital endpoint, I think we talked about it. I think there will definitely be opportunities in the area of digital endpoint. Just one recent example, I think um, Merck submitted their phase three program uh, with, uh, I think it's cough medication um, Mm -hmm. based on the the measurement of sound or cough uh, through a device uh, that was submitted, uh, I think, uh, earlier this year. And I I mentioned this, um, you know, uh, nighttime scratching behavior for the um, uh, atopic dermatitis indication. Yeah. So yeah. it's 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 coming in a way, and also what we don't see often, oh, you know, not publicized enough, is really in the early phase space, yeah. where these kind of data can help us to make decision, you know, either to continue, which means substantial investment down the road, or to stop early, which I think is equally important. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest gains probably will be. Before phase two, or maybe leading up to phase two, and after phase three, <laughs> because after phase three you have also, you know, uh, you can get, collect much more data in the field. You have, you know, um, I'm pretty sure in the future we will have much more data by collected by by patients. Yeah, when they actually take these medications, and that says some companies will use these data to help the patients, you know, stay on treatment, optimize those, manage side effects, you know, what, whatever, all kind of different things. Yeah. yeah. And even, you know, maybe alert uh, relatives in case of anything is happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of things we can think about that, that will happen in the future in this space uh, because well, just to, you know, think about what we are already measuring, yeah, in terms of uh, devices on our body, and I think that it will only increase over the years, um, because yeah, there's a lot of symptoms or a lot of diseases we we can avoid if we detect them early, or we can better treat them if we detect them early, and I'm pretty sure there's there will be you know in a couple of years, don't know when. We we'll probably have lots of monitors for for typical things on our body. <laughs> I would guess. Yeah, I, I agree. Just think about you know all the functionalities of uh, your Apple Watch, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Cardiovascular, so, cardio, all the cardiovascular topics. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. is is very easy. There's lots of things that are rather easy to measure. Yes, which will be important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, right, and and just tack on what you just said about uh, you know post approval data collection, right? So if you have access to 
again, to, to real-world data post-approval. And there you also have the opportunity, as you said, to, to provide some kind of individualized treatment solution, right? Yeah. If you think about in the space of diabetes, let's say your company has a luxury of uh, having all the classes of drugs, and if the database is large enough, and then maybe you can even develop algorithm to say this, this kind of patient should follow this kind of treatment yeah. pattern. If you fail this one, then maybe the next one should be, yeah. you know, out of the five classes, you should be class number three. You should do this, right? Yeah. yeah I, I think, think yeah. Mm -hmm. these high cost chronic diseases will probably be the first ones and diabetes is very much at the forefront right. of that. Yeah. That's yeah, right. I completely yes. agree. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We touched on a lot of different things, starting from kind of what data science is, what, what, how we can describe it, and going into a couple of different examples and use cases of data science up to where we might be in a couple of years or a couple of de decades. And um, I think that just tells us that we need to on top of what's happening here and there's a lot of opportunities for quantitative people like us to play a significant role here in, in this field any kind of key takeaway that you would like the listener to leave this episode with okay i i think you know com really coming from the clinical development perspective i think we will not get less data the data will become more and more Yeah, and in terms of types of data, again, there will be more of a diver, uh, you know, variety coming yeah. along our way. So, certainly, I see the importance for our profession as you know, a trained statistician to really embrace uh, all the changes. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not only about inference. It, there's has a lot to do with you know prediction, modeling, you know, automation. These are all relevant for us. Yeah. Yeah. So. Completely agree. And as you said, there's a lot of areas beyond the purely medical data where we can play our role. Steve Pike had that mentioned in an episode some, some time ago that there's you know, lots of opportunities for us there as yeah. well. Right. Thanks so much. That was awesome to have you. And Thank you. Keep in touch. And All right. for the listener... You'll find, you know, the links that Dutching mentioned uh, in the show notes. So check out all the show notes on theeffectivestatistician.com. Thank you for having me. This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain and her team who helps with the show in the background. And thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about this podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health area. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. <music>